going to tell you guys my unrealistic and yet at the same time my fervent prayer for this morning. And that way, Lord willing, we can all be praying together. I am praying that everyone who is in this room, those who are watching online, if you do not know that you know that you know that you have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, may today be the day that you know that for sure. This morning, you're going to see that in our study of the book of James, we get into a text that is one of the most misunderstood and often one of the most misrepresented passages found in the Bible. A lot of pet theology and personal agendas get anchored into this particular set of verses. And that means that the potential for division as well as personal irritation is extremely high. In fact, of all the passages in the New Testament, I cannot think of another passage that divides more people in so many different ways at such a deep and profound level as the text that we're about to get into this morning. Here's just a few of the differences that people have based on these verses. Some people use this passage as proof that a person can lose their salvation. So eternal security of believers is argued from these verses. Some people believe that this text proves that people are saved by faith plus works. In fact, this is ground zero for the works-based salvation crowd. So the essence of the gospel, the essence of salvation is argued and fought about in this exact set of verses. Some people go even further within that. Instead of saying that it is salvation by faith plus works, they go as far as to say, no, that's not it at all. You are saved by works plus an intellectual acceptance of the gospel message. So in that case, we find that the idea, the essence of faith and how it fits within the salvific process is being argued from this exact text. Some people will point to this text as an example of a supposed contradiction in the Bible. They will say that the Apostle Paul taught justification by faith, and yet James is teaching justification by works. Both of them cannot be right. Therefore, it's a contradiction in the Word of God. So literally, we find that the integrity of Scripture is argued from these verses. Others use the text to suggest that the main focus of the church should be on social ministries like caring for the sick and clothing the poor and meeting tangible needs instead of on preaching the gospel and making disciples. So literally, the mission of the church is argued from these verses. Just for a moment, let the gravity of that sink in. In this set of verses, it has divided people over the nature of faith, the importance of works, the essence of salvation, the eternal security of believers, the mission of the church, and the integrity of Scripture. There's a lot riding on these verses. So we're going to take our time. We're going to take our time and walk through it, and we're going to allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. We're going to take our time. We're not going to rush what we're doing in this because there's too much at stake. There's a lot of people who wrestle with, am I saved or is it just in my mind? Lord willing, you will answer that question according to the word this morning. 
There's a lot of people who are looking at these verses and saying, well, what does it truly mean? Is there a test of salvation? How do I know if I truly know him? You're going to see it in the text. So I want us to be extremely careful, but here's what we'll find. If we carefully take our time to walk through the text, we're going to find incredible clarity. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we're going to see that James is actually protecting the purity of saving faith by confronting people who make a profession of faith in Christ, but their lives show no evidence of the indwelling presence of God. Throughout the entire letter, James hammers this point. If there is no change, there is no Christ. If there is no change, there is no Christ. Jesus on the inside will always impact behavior on the outside. In fact, the connection between faith in Christ and personal good works is so strong, so clear, that James boldly states in verse 17, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Not hurting, not minimal, not weak, dead. In fact, that's not a slip of the pen on James's side. There are 10 times in 13 verses that he makes this connection between genuine faith and works that will come out of that. Saving faith will always be manifested in works. Dr. Adrian Rogers once told a group of young pastors, don't try to fight every spiritual battle. Pick the ones that mean the most and be willing to die on that hill. James is about to die on this hill. This one means too much. He, he's fighting for clarity in a place of incredible confusion. Saving faith will always be manifested in good works. Our actions, our works, how we live our life is either going to validate or it's going to nullify the profession of faith that we have made in Christ. We've got a lot to cover this morning. I invite you to join me in the text, James chapter number 2. We're going to be in verses 14 through 26. James 2, 14 through 26. This morning I'm preaching part one of faith that works. Faith that works. Let's begin in verse number 14. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed, and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see that man is justified by works and not by faith alone. 
In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Can you all see why there's so much confusion in this text? Let's ask God to clarify that. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, we need your spirit to guide us into truth this morning. Oh God, may we only walk away with what you would have us to know. In Jesus' name, amen. Due to the confusing nature of the text, as I've already said, we're going to take our time and we're going to walk slowly through this. We want to do things in a contextually accurate way so that we are not adding more confusion to an already difficult text. One of the first things that we always need to do is find out context. How does this passage fit into what's taking place within the book itself? So on multiple Sunday mornings as I've gone through in the book of James, I've given basic pieces of context. Here's like a 20-second version of that. The entire book of James confronts the problem of Christians saying one thing and doing another. Their professed beliefs did not align with their personal behaviors. There was a lack of integrity. There was an issue of being hypocritical. Their behavior was adversely impacting their gospel witness. And according to what we find in the book of James, it shows that wisdom and spiritual maturity are essential for the person who wants to live an undivided Christian life. Well, now in chapter 2, James points out some other areas of inconsistency. In verses 1 through 9, he has addressed inconsistency between the message of the gospel and sins of division. Those sins like partiality and favoritism and prejudice and discrimination. He's like, that's an inconsistency. You, You cannot claim the gospel and also hold those beliefs at the same time. That does not align. Then in verses 10 through 13, he addressed the inconsistency between Christians sinning against each other and at the same time having no thought for the fact one day you will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. He was like, there's inconsistency. You're you're acting in one way, but you're forgetting this other part over here. Now in verses 14 through 26, he confronts inconsistency between those people who say, I have faith in Christ, and yet their actions do not back it up at all. We have only one big truth that we're going to cover for this entire section, verses 14 all the way through verse 26. But I'm going to pull that apart with three different principles, guiding principles to make that one big truth come alive. So here's your big truth for the morning. It's possible to have works without saving faith, but it is impossible to have saving faith without works. Let me say that again. It's possible to have works without saving faith. In other words, somebody can give to the poor, somebody can serve someone else, somebody can do something nice for someone. You don't have to be saved in order to do nice things or have works that would go out from your life. But here's the point that James is making. If you are saved, it is impossible to have saving faith and that not be a part of your life. The works will flow out. So what does this passage teach us about faith that works. This is our one big principle that we're going to pull out for the rest of our time. I got three total. You're going to get to one of those this morning. Here's your one major statement. 
Saving faith is always accompanied by sanctifying works. Saving faith is always accompanied by sanctifying works. So when I talk about saving faith, I'm talking about faith that is placed in the finished work of Jesus, whereby a person is made right with God. Saving faith is more than intellectual agreement with a theological proposition. Saving faith is more than tears and emotion within a church service. Saving faith is more than a past decision that is completely devoid of current and present sanctification. Saving faith involves the entire person, its mind, its emotions, its will. That is, the mind understands the truth, the heart desires the truth, and the will acts upon the truth. Warren Wearsby taught this particular section of Scripture by describing three different kinds of faith. And I want to walk you through those three kinds that he described. Now, when I say that we're taking our time this morning, this is going to be an interesting flow that we work through. I'm not going to start in verse 14 and just kind of begin to build one after another. I'm going to sweep through the entire section showing the kinds of faith that are mentioned, and then we're going back into verse number 14, and we're going to pick up there. So here's what Warren Wearsby taught about the three different kinds of faith that are found in this text. The first is what he called dead faith. That's found in verse 17, verse 20, and in verse 26. He says, faith without works is dead. This is a type of faith that impacts the mind alone. This is the individual who intellectually accepts the basics of the gospel. Now, that might be startling to some people, that somebody can intellectually accept the basics of the gospel, but I can show you from Scripture, and also you can see it in real life why that is the case. This is a person who they would say, yes, Jesus is real. Yes, they believe that they have sinned. Yes, they agree that their sin has separated them from God. Yes, they agree that Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty of sin. Yes, they agree that he rose again on the third day. They believe all of that. But here's the thing. They do not entrust themselves to those beliefs. There's not a desire to act upon those beliefs. It's on the same level as somebody believing that ibuprofen is going to reduce discomfort from a headache and still not taking the ibuprofen. It's possible for somebody to say, yes, I believe that to be true, and yet I'm still not going to act upon it. I'm still not going to entrust myself to it. According to James, that's not saving faith. That's dead faith. The word dead in verse 20, it carries the meaning of barren or idle. It's like money that draws no interest. Dead faith is a counterfeit faith. Dead faith lulls people into a false sense of security of making them say, because I believe and accept this, I must be a Christian. He would go beyond that and say, if you're a Christian, it's going to be lived out in your life and in your actions. Here's the next one. He talks about demonic faith. Verses 19 and 20. He says, the demons also believe and shudder. Notice that there's a new piece that's added, and shudder. That is, this is a faith that impacts the mind. They believe, and they respond. There is an action that comes out of that. There's an emotion. There's a fear that comes with this. This is going to be a strange statement. 
But demons have a more orthodox view of God than many people have. It doesn't mean that's saving faith. It means they know certain things to be true. Theologically speaking, demons would be monotheist. Now, we're not going to go back into the entire creation narrative itself, but if you'll remember, there were angels that were created. There's a third of which that followed Satan after the fall. Those third are now referred to as demons. So these are former angels that were created beings. They know there is one God. They know that God is powerful. They know that God's word is accurate. They know that Jesus is God's son. They know that salvation is by grace through faith. They know that Jesus died on the cross. They know that he was raised again on the third day. They know that Jesus has ascended back to heaven and now sits at the right hand of the Father. They know all of that. There is a belief that is there. There's an orthodoxy within their beliefs. But listen, with all of the orthodoxy of the beliefs, they're not saved. Even though they know truth about God, they hate the truth they know and they hate the God it points to. That's a part of James's argument in verse 19. He references the Jewish prayer, the Shema, found over in Deuteronomy 6.4. And it succinctly states belief in one true God. It's very clear. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. That, that one simple prayer, it could be one of the most concise and clear statements about God found anywhere within the Bible. But here's the thing that you find in that. In somewhat of a sarcastic way, in verse no, number 19, James says, you believe God is one. You do well. In other words, that's good. You're on the right path. But look at the next part of his statement. The demons also believe in shudder. Uh, the word shudder, it means bristle or, or tremble. It's used of trembling associated with great fear. Even the demons know enough truth about God to know he is there, he is real, he is powerful. And because of that, it says they shudder with that knowledge. If the only thing someone is holding on to to validate their salvation is the idea, I believe there is a God, I believe that Jesus is real. I believe he died and he rose again. James would say, do you know who also believes that? Demons. It's got to be more than an intellectual acceptance of truths about Jesus. It has to be that there's something beyond that. Here's the interesting thing for me. In Deuteronomy 6.5, literally the verse right after the Shema, it says, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. The connection James is making is beautiful. Belief in the God of Deuteronomy 6.4 without obedience to the same God of Deuteronomy 6.5. That's what demons do. In other words, believing that that God is real but not entrusting yourself, not loving him, heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's what demons do. That's not saving faith. Here's the third type of faith that Warren Rearsby describes. That is dynamic faith, found in verses 21 through 26. It says, faith was working with his works, 
And as a result of the works, faith was perfected. Dynamic faith is going to be faith that impacts the mind, the emotions, as well as the will. Once again, it's, that is the mind understands the truth, the heart desires the truth, the will acts upon that truth. Saving faith or dynamic faith is based on the word of God. This is so important. It's got to be based on the word. We, we have to be clear, have to be clear, this is the word of God. It doesn't matter what a denomination says. It doesn't matter what another pastor says. If what they say does not align with what he said, it's not the word of God. It has to come back here. Now, James has already been preparing us for this back in chapter 1. That is, according to James 1.18, we are born again according to God's will and by the word of truth. Then in verse number 21, James reminds us that in receiving the word, it is able to save the soul. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word. Here's the beauty of this. When the Holy Spirit illumines a deceived mind to understand the truths of the gospel, when the Holy Spirit quickens a dead heart to be able to respond to that truth, when the Holy Spirit enables that person to to understand and to hear and calls that person into relationship and that person places faith in what Jesus has done, God saves that person. And it is completely the work of God. We understand that because deceived people do not believe and dead people do not act. Now, put the pieces together. The person with dead faith, they have an intellectual experience. The person with demonic faith, They have an intellectual and even an emotional experience. The person with dynamic faith, they have an intellectual, an emotional, and a volitional experience. They act upon what it is that they are being called to in salvation. It is only dynamic faith, only saving faith that transforms a person from death to life. It is only that type of saving faith that receives the life of Christ and therefore can reveal the life of Christ. Now, we have described the types of faith that are found in this section. Now, I want us to go back to verse number 14 for just a moment. It begins with this phrase, What use is it, my brethren? And then it says, Can that type of faith save him? Other translations say that kind of faith. Well, what kind is he talking about? He tells you right there in the text. The kind of faith that makes claims about faith in Jesus, but is not backed up by works. The the Greek construction here, it is a rhetorical question. In other words, it would come out as, can that type of faith save him? Of course not. That's the statement that's being made right here. John Calvin once said, it is faith alone that justifies, but the faith that justifies can never be alone. The word alone in verse 17, it means by itself. True saving faith can never be by itself because true saving faith always brings life and life always produces good works. Now let's pause here for just a moment. Let's regroup. I know I've been throwing a lot of theology your direction right now, so let's Let's take a breather for just a moment. Is it really important that we spend this much time talking about those types of faith? Yes. A hundred percent yes. 
the church, universally speaking, has a clarity problem in regard to faith. There's a clarity problem. People are mistaking intellectual acceptance with saving faith. And then we're trying to disciple someone who's not truly saved. Do you know who makes a really good disciple? A saved person. When the Spirit of God is indwelling that person, there is now desire, there is enablement, there is movement towards truth. It is the Spirit doing a work in and through that person's life. Apart from that, we're trying to take the impossible commands of God and somebody who is already flawed and sinful is trying to say, I'll live them out myself. We couldn't do it. That's the reason we need to be saved. That's what the whole section is about. We have to be incredibly clear, acknowledging gospel facts without entrusting yourself to Jesus is insufficient for salvation. Jesus said, not Paul, not Southern Baptist, not Sherwood, Jesus said, Matthew 7, 22 and 23, many will say to me on that day, not some, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. How do you know if what you have is saving faith? That is the exact reason James is writing this. That is the exact thing. He's he's not only teaching it, but he's also giving us a test. Saving faith is always accompanied by sanctifying works. How do we know that we're not just fooling ourselves or talking a big spiritual game? James would say, look at how you live. Look at your actions. Are you walking in obedience? Do you have a desire for the things of God? Are you faithfully following Jesus? Is God living his life in and through you? The question is not that of perfection. On this side of heaven, none of us are going to be perfect. The issue here is perseverance. Are we still walking with Jesus? Are we still pursuing him? Is he still living his life in and through us? I need you all to pay close, close attention to what I'm about to say. So many people hold on to a moment in their past as the strongest validation for their salvation. And please hear me. If you are a Christian, there has been a moment somewhere in your life where you transitioned from death to life. No question about it. But the strongest validation of our salvation is not, did I pray a prayer back then? But am I walking with Jesus today? It's not that back then is unimportant. It's the fact that we can talk a big game. And he's addressing people who were doing exactly that. And he's saying, You're saying you're saved, but there's no fruit of righteousness in your life. There's no desire for the things of God in your life. You're not progressing with God. You're you're talking a big game, but it's not being lived in your life. I need you to hear this. When true salvation occurs, 
God, God, not us, God, will create new longings in the believer to forsake sin and self and gladly serve the Lord. He does that. I can remember this was one of the clearest moments in my life. I had prayed a prayer many times. I shared that last week. I would prayed a prayer many times out of fear of what was coming. And then whenever I was at a point where literally I just surrendered my life before God. I, I, I was just, God, I need you. God, if you could do anything with my life, it's yours. Here's what I can tell you. After that moment, he changed things in me that I had no plan on him changing. He gave me desires that I didn't have before. Before, I would read the Bible because somebody told me I had to. After I got saved, I couldn't wait to read my Bible. Before, I went to church because that's what my family did. After I got saved, even if our church was closed that night, I'd go find somebody else's church to go to. Prior to that, I would pray, but I prayed because I was like, well, maybe God will answer. This is kind of like... Worst case scenario, he'll answer. I mean, that's kind of where I was. After I got saved, all of a sudden I'm like, prayer is conversation with God. Prayer changes things. I need to pray. There was this new desire that was inside of me that was not there before. I remember one of the clearest moments in my life when I got saved is the fact my mom had been telling me for years, your music is not of God. Your music does not honor God. You need to get rid of that music. And I was like, that's just my mom talking. That doesn't mean anything. And then I got saved. I got out of a church service. I put in Guns and Roses appetite for destruction in cassette tape in my Celica GT and I got to this one song and I was like that is the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life I didn't want to go back and tell my mom that because she would say I told you that for years but here's the thing God began to change things in me that it was not me changing when the Spirit of God indwells someone what happens on the inside is going to manifest on the outside and if somebody's saying, he's changed me, and yet it doesn't change their behavior, it doesn't change what they do, it doesn't change how they talk, it doesn't change where they go, it doesn't change who they associate with, it doesn't change the direction of their life, it doesn't change how they use their resources. If somebody's saying, I know him, but it doesn't change anything, where there is no change, there is no Christ, he's going to change us. It's interesting to me that when we get sidetracked on trying to make our point in Scripture, we will disconnect verses that are not intended to be disconnected. Let me give you a prime example of this in this context. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Clear, Paul is saying, we're saved by grace through faith and that not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Do you know why we quote that? Because we want it to be clear. We're saved by grace through faith and not works. Did you read verse 10 right afterwards? For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Did you see how closely those are connected? Yes, you're saved by grace through faith. It's not your works, but you have been created in Christ Jesus for good works. It is our works are going to follow our faith and our attempts to, to 
I guess, emphasize faith, we have devalued works in the process of the believer. Saving faith will always be accompanied by sanctifying works. So what kind of works will those be? Well, he's already given us a whole list of them. That is, things like endurance, chapter 1, verse 3. Perseverance under trial, chapter 1, verse 12. Purity of life, chapter 1, verse 21. Obedience to scripture, chapter 1, 22 and 23. Compassion for the needy, chapter 1, 27. Impartiality, chapter 2, 1 through 9. Those are just some of the works. He's like, this is what it looks like to be a believer. He's going to change those things. And now he gives us two more examples in verses 15 and 16. If a brother or sister is without clothing in a need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed, be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? That's the second time he used that phrase. First time was in verse number 14. What use is that? James is looking for results in proportion to an individual's faith. Other translations would say, what profit is that? What value is that? What what use is that? Saving faith is going to have certain results. See, here's the argument he's making. If somebody says, go, warm yourself, be filled, and yet they don't give the person what they need he was like what good was that you just you just talked real nice to him you just didn't do anything (laughs) here it is genuine concern brings genuine action if our actions don't back up our words our actions don't mean much John chapter 3, 17 and 18. 1 John 3, 17 and 18. It says, But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? He's like, how, how can that even be possible? He says, My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. There's action. Saving faith always is accompanied by sanctifying works. Now in verse number 18, but someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I'll show you my faith by my works. Did you know it is impossible to show, operative word, show your faith without works? You can try to describe your faith to someone, but you can't show them without doing something. James is not alone in teaching that there should be tangible actions that come with saving faith. John the Baptist taught that people should prove the reality of their repentance by the excellence of their good deeds. Matthew 3.8, Luke 3.8. Jesus taught in Matthew 5.16, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. At the very end of the parable of the four soils, Jesus said, the one in whom the seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some 60, some 30. In other words, when the good seed falls on the good soil, there's going to be fruit. There's going to be actions, hundredfold, 60-fold, 30-fold, but there's going to be fruit that comes from that. 
So how does this text impact our lives today? If there is no change, there is no Christ. I can hear somebody already say, Paul, you weren't there when my child prayed a prayer of repentance. You weren't there when they cried. You weren't there when they asked me for a Bible and they started going to church. Paul, I know that was 10 years ago. I know they're not walking with the Lord. I know they don't desire the things of God. But I know they're saved because I was there. I'm not trying to get anybody upset at all. And I would never try to tell you the state of another person's heart. I can simply tell you what Scripture says. Faith without works is dead. Dead faith is not saving faith. Even the demons have that level of belief. The strongest validation for a person's salvation is not, I prayed a prayer back then. The strongest validation is, am I walking with Jesus today? You're going to clearly see as we continue this text, James and Paul are not in conflict about the basis of salvation. They're not standing face to face confronting each other. They're actually standing back to back fighting two common enemies of the faith. Paul is opposing works-based salvation, and James is opposing easy beliefism. Both of them are not saving faith. Remember our key truth. It's possible to have works without saving faith, but it is impossible to have saving faith without works. My invitation is simple. Are you sure that you know the Lord? Are you 100% confident? If you are, then I'm going to ask you at this moment right now that you would begin to pray for the people around you and those who are watching online who are in the middle of a spiritual battle at this point. Pray that God gives clarity to people. If you are wondering about the salvation, and, and again, please hear me, there is a new disposition that comes when a person is saved. It is not that there will be perfection in this person's life. In a conditional sense, we all are working out our salvation in fear and trembling. But when someone is saved, God changes and gives them new desires, a new disposition. That is a disposition that hates sin, that loves the Lord, that wants to know him, and desires to walk in obedience with him. When a person is living according to those things, God is changing that person's life and their behavior. So if you're not sure of where you stand before God, let today be the day that you say, God, please, would you nail this down in my life today? There's going to be pastors and some of our pastors' wives will be at the front. There's also going to be a number of counselors who will also be at the front as well. 
I've given the gospel on many, many mornings. As they're getting in place, as our worship team is getting in place, let me go back again through the essence of the gospel one more time. The gospel is the good news that speaks of our creation, sin's intrusion, and Christ's solution for human flourishing. The gospel tells us that humanity was created for relationship with God. That's why you're here. The Bible tells us our sin separated us from that relationship. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Bible tells us that none of us could do everything that is necessary in order to be right with God. Our good works were not enough. Our religion was not enough. Our great intentions were not enough. We could not do what was right in order to be in right relationship with God. But Jesus did for us what we could not do for ourselves. He lived a sinless life. He died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. He rose from the dead three days later that we might have eternal life. And he offers eternal life, a reconciled relationship to anyone who will turn from their sin by placing faith in Jesus Christ. For the person who's willing to do that, God saves them. He removes the sin debt. He wipes the slate clean. He gives them new desires, a new heart, a new mind, a new future, new opportunity. He, he does for us what we could never imagine even be impossible. And he doesn't do it because we did something to earn it. He does it because he is good and he is gracious and it is in accordance with his desire and his will. If you do not know without a doubt of where you will spend eternity and whether or not you're in right relationship with God, I'm going to lead in a very simple prayer. I tell people all the time, this prayer does not save you. I cannot save you. This church cannot save you. Jesus alone has done what is necessary for our salvation. All we are doing in this moment is someone is agreeing with God, confessing with their mouth the Lord Jesus, believing in their heart that God has raised him from the dead. And Scripture says that person will be saved. If that is the desire of your heart, I'm going to lead in a very simple prayer. This is between you and God. It goes like this. Heavenly Father, I know that I've sinned. And I know that my sin separated me from you. God, I recognize there's nothing I could do to make things right. I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sin. Then he rose again on the third day. As best I know how, I submit myself before you. I ask you to forgive me of my sin. I ask you, Lord, to give me eternal life. In Jesus' name. With heads still bowed, eyes still closed. There's a lot of people in this room. I would love to rejoice with you. If you prayed with me in that moment for God to save you, wherever you are, for just a moment, would you lift your hand wherever you might be? Thank you. Thank you. I see the hands. I see the hands. Thank you. Praise the Lord. You may put them down. Thank you. In just a few moments, we're going to sing a song of invitation. We're going to encourage people today 
to respond, to take that next step. Remember, part of this is a profession of faith, and there's a life of works and obedience that comes behind this. If today, or maybe on previous weeks, if you place faith in Jesus, but you want to know what it looks like to walk with him, come talk to one of our pastors. There might be people who just simply need prayer. Come pray with one of them. Come, come pray by yourself if that's what you would like to do. Heavenly Father, may you be glorified in this place. We thank you, Lord, that you continue to save lives. God, we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we sing? The time of invitation is open. <laughs>